You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. All right, I have a question for you. As you think about growing up, what was your relationship to money or your money story growing up? When I was younger? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, how did you relate to it? What was your experience with it? You know, did you feel like there was never enough? There was always too much or, you know? I I don't know. I guess I, I never felt like there wasn't enough. Um, you know, I, I don't remember you or mom ever saying we can't afford that. Uh, you might choose to, you might say that's too expensive. That's stupid. We're not going to spend money on that. Right. But you never said like, oh, we can't afford it. Um, which I think is a mindset for, for most things. People will say they can't afford an $8 iced coffee. Like yeah. you can afford it. <laughs> you choose to not buy the $8 iced coffee, yeah. you know, and that's probably a good choice. Um, but I never heard you say that. And, uh, but I had some, but I never felt like it was money was plentiful because as a kid, you know, I wasn't given money or anything. I, I worked for money and you encouraged me to work for money. And even when I was really little, you would like, you know, pay me for doing like extra chores that weren't sure. normal. Yeah, there was opportunity to make some opportunity to make money. And, and it was always kind of with the understanding that I would save that money. So I remember the earliest, earliest thing with money. I remember my elementary school, Ridgely Hills Elementary, had a relationship with Omni Bank. And Omni Bank would come every Friday, set up in the lobby of the school, and you could open a savings account for your little kid. Yeah. And when you walked them, dropped them off at school, you could make a deposit to the savings account. Yeah. And just like anything that is good and works, uh, they've stopped doing it in public schools. <laughs> right. So they don't do that anymore. Just <laughs> why teach kids about money at yeah. school. Yeah. But I do remember that whenever I went to go buy a car in college, um, I used the money that I had been saving, you know, since I was four years old. Yeah. Okay. So those those things impacted you? Yeah, positively. Well, yeah, well that's What was your earliest? Well, I, re- I remember um, it, it seemed like there was never enough. There was an adequate amount, but never enough. It was always a fight. Mm. You know, there were, okay. Uh, you know, I, and maybe it was just the kids I ran around with that, that it seemed like they always had more money. Or maybe, maybe a lot of people have that experience. Uh, they always had more money than I did. You were so, friends with like the richest kids I, in town. I was at the, at the time they all fed into the public school I went to back in the day. And, uh, yeah, some of the richest kids in the, in the city. Yeah. Went to my school. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that was inevitable. Yeah, I would have felt I would have felt some type of way too. If that well, it's that that has impacted how I relate to maybe that impacted why I became a financial advisor, but it's impacted how I relate to money. How I always make sure there's enough of it. I always make sure I save and invest and plan. So that's maybe maybe it worked out for me. Well, our guest today knows a lot about those early money stories, and that's what she helps her clients with. Doctor Mary Bell Carlson is a financial behavior expert. And it's worked in both the military and government communities for the last decade, from the bowels of the Pentagon to international audiences. Dr. Carlson has presented numerous seminars and worked on a variety of financial planning and education projects. After getting married and having her two daughters, she started ChiefFinancialMom.com, a personal finance education platform to help busy moms. Currently, she also works as adjunct faculty for the financial planning programs at both the University of Georgia and Texas Tech University. She earned her PhD from Kansas State University in personal financial planning with an emphasis in financial therapy. 
Her master's is from tech and her undergrad from BYU. She holds both the certified financial planner and accredited financial counselor designation. She's a extraordinarily sought after speaker and consultant given her wealth of experience and expertise in the field. We had a great conversation with Dr. Mary. We talked about money scripts, the stories we tell ourselves about our early money experiences. We even got into what money smells like and how that answer is different based on your relationship with money. I learned a lot. I know you will too. Stick around and we'll dive into it. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Well, Mary, you and I, you and I got to uh, meet each other yeah. down at a, at a conference, the Shift Conference, a, mm-hmm. several months it's ago. Been a yeah, yeah, and I was really impressed with the with the content of what you were talking about, which was around how do people make financial decisions, and that uh, that obviously just you know hit right with what uh, what we talk about every day. How did you get into that area? Take me through the journey of how you sort of got into where you where you are now and what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Let me back up. I think it began really with my love of money and people. I worked for a small hometown bank growing up and I really loved those two topics. So I, of course, entered into finance, which as everyone knows, has nothing to do with people, has everything to do with spreadsheet and corporate money. And I hated it. It was absolutely miserable. I I tripped into Texas Tech University. My sister had been going there and found this wonderful thing called personal financial planning. And when I found financial planning, it was just that magic of people and money combined. So I got my master's degree, came out to Washington, D.C., and I felt like at that time, everybody needed to know what I knew. And that was, I wanted to teach about money, right? Personal finance topics. And I started on Capitol Hill, actually. And I had interned there early on and just started knocking on doors and and thought, this is where I'm going to go. I landed at FPA, Financial Planning Association, as a lobbyist. That was actually my first job out of college. Oh, wow. Crazy okay. enough. Interesting. Now, what are they lobbying, though? I mean, I guess there are some regulations on... Yeah. Yeah. So I my portfolio was specifically taxes. So we did a lot of the extra provisions uh, for and that means... We'll, we'll quit with the acronyms. That means any big retirement uh, type savings. Um, I also did a re- Texas retirement, and then I also added to the portfolio financial education. I hadn't done a ton in that space, and it was about uh, mid-2000s. And so the Treasury Department in their gold yeah. room had started offering financial education conversations with all of the agencies, all of the government agencies. And so some of my very first memories were in the Treasury's gold room sitting around talking about financial education, financial literacy, um, with everything from Department of Defense to OPM and all the rest. So I kind of cut my teeth in that federal government world. I got my CFP and then learned I didn't, wasn't able to get my experience required. So I went and worked in wealth yeah. management. Did not, it was not my calling in life. And so I got picked up by the Pentagon. This was right around the time of Iraq and Afghanistan war was going strong. And long story short, I connected with a friend who ended up saying, hey, we want to hire you, who became a friend, actually, he was my boss at the time. And so, and so I went on with the Pentagon and spent about three years flying all over the world teaching financial education. 
to service numbers all over the the world uh, internationally. And that's where I really found my love of teaching. And then I took it to uh, Kansas State, where I, I worked on my PhD there. And at Kansas State, I also worked on the military installation that was close by, and that was Fort Riley. And I worked as what they called a financial counselor in the survivor outreach program. And so service members with loved ones that had died uh, were received about half a million dollars. And so they had financial counselors like myself that helped them figure out what to do with that money. And that was really where I started to see the money and emotion component. That money isn't just a tangible thing. It has so much meaning and value to individuals. I remember one family in particular um, really struggling with the fact that this was blood money and that they, many of them, of course, would rather have their loved one back than this lump sum. But you would see that money disappear. I think the quickest we ever saw one lead was three months that money was spent and it never returned. Um, yeah. So that was where it really got me started. I ended up writing my dissertation on the financial behavior of soldiers before and after deployment and got back into that world of really financial psychology, financial behavior, and how money works and affects us, not just from a technical aspect of running spreadsheets and knowing numbers, but really at a personal level, uh, a relational level, a familial level, and even our own money history of how we feel and think about money ourselves. Yeah, you know, that is so true. One of my very first clients, when I first started the business about some 30-something years ago, they had inherited some money, just like what you were talking about. And between our first meeting and me getting back with them, probably half of it was either gone or spoken for. And so I had to redo the plan. And I, I said, okay, well, you know, I, and I got new information and I redid their entire financial plan. And I came back and another probably third of it was gone. And it was just, it was just devastating because, you know, kind of like what you, you described, that money's not coming back and it was instant wealth and it went instant. Uh, my guess is in working with a lot of military and you, you're talking about working with survivors because of the demographics, did you end up working with a lot of women uh, as recipients of life insurance payouts and things like that? Or was it more evenly split? It was Pretty uh, unique. I would say it's evenly split. It was a different dynamic. So parents of soldiers, you're talking about very young service numbers as well. So some of them weren't even married yet. Um, And then, yeah, the demographics were very different. Some came from two uh, parent households or or just a very, a big variety, I would say, uh, exists uh, within that community, especially given on the type of uh, situation that they're living under. Well, you, you end up working with a lot of women, though, in, in your later work. Do you, you find that unique? Yeah, I actually partake in a particular interest. I think myself being a woman and just being interested in women and, and, and women in a male-dominated industry. So financial planning by far uh, is mostly male. Uh, in fact, yeah. most CFP certificates, advisors, about 75% sure. are yeah. And most certificates are also male. And so it's interesting to come in from a female perspective. But one of the things that I'm finding very interesting right now is McKinsey and Company put out a study about three years ago uh, that said there's a big transformation happening. We're switching hands from baby boomers. There's $30 trillion that will be switching from male predominantly male domination to female hands. So as spouses are beginning to die, typically the male dies before the female, 
that money is switching over and going to the female's hands. What's also interesting from a financial planning perspective is that 70% of those females will fire their financial advisor within the first year of their loved one dying. And you ask yeah, the reason you know, why. I, I have I have been on the receiving end of that, you know, early <laughs> in my in my career. And I and I made some mistakes that I it was it was hard lessons, but you know, you sort of learn okay. the hard way and then you correct and it, it doesn't happen anymore. In fact, just the opposite. Um, you know, I've I've had I have clients now who are single women, they get married and the man or transfers over to me. Uh, all their assets kind of combined, but this is early on. And the mistake I made is I started meeting with the husband by himself. himself. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm the decision maker and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and he was, but I, I did nothing to bring her in and educate her on what was going on. And so this guy had, was making a lot of decisions. And at at that point in my career, I was just sort of order taking and, you know, yes, sir. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And, and I was following mm-hmm. his, this guy's lead and he was making yeah, these yeah. horrible decisions. And so when he passed, she looked at what was going on and she was just horrified. She's like, why in the world would you tell my husband to buy this? I was like, I, I, did, I didn't tell him. <laughs> he told me. It, it was his idea. I probably, you know, it was his uh-huh. idea. I could, you know, I could trash the guy, you know. And, uh, it, it's, <laughs> and, and, and so she just, she just picked it all up and left. And from then, I started really making sure that I had meetings with the husbands and the wives and that, and that I made sure that the, the wife was brought in because a lot of them, in particularly older demographics, you find that the, and this was my experience anyway, that the woman of, of people who are retired in an older demographic tend to take a more passive role on the financial decision making. And, and so it's very easy to let them sort of fade into the, the background and, and speak to the decision maker. And so you really have to go through some effort to bring both parties in, make sure you're having conversations, make sure you're having joint decisions. I think that's yeah, really, it, really key. I think it's important no matter who the breadwinner is. Like I've, I've had clients who, mm-hmm. um, you know, the wife was the, the breadwinner in the family and it was kind of more more of a relationship that we had with the wife than with the husband. And yeah. when they die, it's the same type of type of dynamic of, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I don't know how any decisions were made to get to this point. And, and it, it really sets them up for, for a lot of temptation to make bad choices and a lot of high emotion choices at a high emotion time, yeah. you know, when they were uninvolved up until that process or up until that point rather. And let me even flip the dialogue in a different way, because I heard like we need to educate, we need to teach. The other part of this is, is we need to listen as financial advisors. That's actually one of the things that we could do to improve relationships with that female client is really hearing them. Not just I love the fact that you're having a meeting. In fact, Sean, I see so many financial planning desks set up where the female is off to the corner behind the computer screen and there's just a dialogue between the two guys. Yes, we need to absolutely bring her in, uh, but we also yeah. need to hear because females uh, females discuss their goals and utilize their goals in a very different way. For men, a lot of times what you'll want to discuss is net worth, right? They want the numbers, they want the hard facts. For a lot of times females, it's more about how do I feel about this, or I want to bring in and I want to have a second vacation home because that's where our family can meet together because family is really important to me. 
Mm-hmm. So it's different mm-hmm. ways of discussing goals, but hearing what they have to say and seeing that importance into it is absolutely vital. You, you yeah, you're so right. I was I was having that exact same conversation with some friends of mine uh, just two days ago, and we were we were talking about how men and women really make decisions differently with respect to the finances. And I was sharing with them my experience had been that. Just like what you said, uh, a lot of women will tend to value the present and the family currently over longer term planning. Though the the when men tending to be you know there's always exceptions, tending to be the the savers and looking into the future, um, women tend to be looking at how do we create a, a family home now that's you know creating the experience that that they want, and and sometimes those decisions are at, are at odds. And a lot of the, the men that I talk to, their main priority, and Sanger, you can tell me if you find this as well, when, when you're talking with, with older couples, the primary goal of that, of that husband, and I, I get it all the time, is wanting to make sure his spouse is taken care of if he passes away before her, because that tends to be what happens. And so there's a lot of discussion about, is she going to be okay? And so they tend to be sort of this protectors, the savers, um, whereas the, the the women tend to be making sure the, you know, let's, yeah, let's support the I've kids. I've never heard a, the house, you know. I've never heard a, even a, a breadwinner, breadwinner wife say, well, I want to make sure he's going to be all right. <laughs> no, I don't do that. <laughs> and, yeah. That doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, maybe it's all their mind. Never enters our conversation. But it, it's, there's... Even forget the the risk to the advisor of, oh, what if my client dies and then the wife that I haven't talked to in 10 years decides to go hire someone else? Um, forget that risk for a moment. There's a big risk to your point, Mary, that if you leave one half of the couple out of the conversation, that you, the advisor, are not going to do a very good job of understanding what's important to them. And and that's that's the hard and fast of that. You know, I want to make sure that I'm understanding what's important to the clients that I'm working for um, and understanding the things that, you know, may not be getting brought up by only one party at a time. Well, that's really going to be important of, of hearing them because a lot of times they won't speak up or they don't understand and they understand things maybe differently or are scared to ask questions, afraid of, of feeling vulnerable or uh, ashamed that they don't know something already. And so I think it's really important uh, as females to feel empowered. We also have to check the fact that as financial planners, we each have our own biases. And so keep in mind, as a male, you may be more disposed to just talking about numbers and talking about the network. And it may be really hard for you to have conversations about the family and what it would look like in 10 years from now if this um, spouse wasn't around, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the types of things to be aware of yourself so that you can make sure and be inclusive of of all parties in the conversation and seeing where they're going with that. So do you do you think that the women for the most part when you you made the the comment that they will tend to change financial advisors do you do you think that the reason is that what we're talking about because they've been left out of the decision making or you think there's something else going on? So according to the research that I'm putting here from McKinsey, it says it's because they haven't been hurt. They haven't been participated. They haven't felt hurt. And I think that's key is they haven't felt hurt. 
because and Maya Angelou says it best. You may forget what I said. You may forget what I did, but you will never forget how I made you feel. That is the most important thing is how we feel, how someone feels from our interaction. And so yeah. if that spouse, and it could be male or female, but if they don't feel heard, if they don't feel participated in and, and being a part of the conversation, then that does make them disengage. Or even feeling it, you know, I had a example the other day, a client who reached out to me and said, uh, they're in their very much retirement years. They're multimillionaires. And she said, I hate those meetings with the financial planner because oh, it's my husband oh. and her and the financial planner sitting down talking all these numbers and talking about the stuff I don't care about, I don't know about, and I feel stupid asking anything, but I have to be in those meetings. And I walk away and she goes, the second my husband passes, I'm going to go give it to my people. And what she meant by my people was the people I trust, the people that I know and will speak real language to me. So having grown up around, I say grown up, I didn't join the military. I, I really, with my first interest was being a part of the military world, but having been a part of it, an outsider, and then understanding inside, there are so many acronyms. I was clueless when I first stepped part of the military world because I didn't understand all the acronyms. It wasn't that I was stupid or I didn't know. It just, I wasn't part of that culture. Well, let's transfer that to financial planners. We use our own acronyms. And it's not that the people we're talking with, the wife is not stupid and the husband is not smart. That is not at all correct. It's just we have different vocabulary. And if we are using technical terms, break it down, make it simple, make it understandable. People with PhDs are very smart in their one thing, but they may not have a strength in personal finance. And that's okay. That's why you are there to support that. But make sure you're using language and communication that makes them feel heard and feel understood. Yeah, and I think most people don't have a language of financial communication. Uh, certainly when they come in to talk to a financial advisor, they don't. Have you seen differences in how people are making decisions in, in a death of a spouse versus a divorce situation? Really good question. I don't so it depends, I guess, is probably the most appropriate answer because the reasons for divorce are so in depth, both are so multifaceted, right? Yeah, I, I, right? I compare it to we're a bit of an onion and there's so many different layers where in some cases that divorce may be a relief. Um, in other cases, it may be a tremendous hardship. In other cases, the death, like there's so many different situations and reasons for that. I hesitate to put a label around that uh, because, again, what's most important is that we understand that individual couple's situation, right? It may be something that is a positive outcome for this couple, whereas in a different scenario, it wouldn't be for a different couple. Yeah, I, I learned that a long time ago. I, I used to apologize, you know, when people I'd learned people got divorced. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And universally, they're like, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, yeah. Odds are at least one of them. So one of them's happy about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, I, I like talking about this because I think that for as many advisors who are out there who are, you know, recklessly uh, leaving one of the spouses uninvolved in these important conversations, I think there there are spouses that, think that they don't have to be involved. You know, we totally. I really try to bring people in and sometimes mm -hmm. one one of them doesn't want to be a part of it. 
And again, they think it's boring. And and maybe some of it is the way that I'm conducting myself in the meetings, but I think that for a large number of married couples, that one of the two think, oh, that's about the money. That's about the numbers. That's about the investments. I'm going to let him or I'm going to let her handle that. And it doesn't work that way. If you, if you do that, like, not only are, are your unique concerns and values not present in that conversation, um, yeah. it's worse than that. A a misinterpretation of your values is present in those conversations because it's not like we don't think about you at all, right? We We're just heading. think about what you might say if you were here, and that's probably worse than ignoring your point of view entirely. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. You know, Singer, I'm really glad you brought that point up. I remember vividly being on a plane from Manhattan, Kansas. I was flying out somewhere and an older woman in her 80s was sitting next to me in the airplane. And we just started up a conversation and she said, you know, um, what are you sitting in school? And I said, oh, it's financial planning. And she looked at me and just started to cry. And she said, you are so fortunate. My husband just passed away. And in the 70 years that we were married. I never once wrote a check. I have no idea what to do at this point. And and she was truly devastated and clueless. It was it was heart wrenching for me. And I just think of that situation and think, what could I do to help that? And so part of that conversation is your right singer. Some people are just completely disinterested, but it has to be something that your both spouses, there's no guarantee of when or if that other spouse who does love the finances maybe isn't around anymore. And it's really imperative to have that conversation. So one way that I like to talk about money with somebody who's maybe money avoided is start to talking about something called your money history. And then it's just like what it sounds. It's how did you grow up about work money? Tell me some stories of from early childhood. What are your first money memories or your first experience with money? Because everybody has those and it can help them relate and start to think about what that was really like for them. And as you start to pull out some of those stories, you might start to see why that person is not interested or where the avoidance comes from or the roughness or whatever the case may be. It really starts to paint a broader picture instead of just that one snapshot moment in time of why they're just not interested in the meeting at the moment. Do you hear... uh common money stories are they are they falling into similar categories like oh we, you know we didn't have any money and so now I want to make sure we have some for safety or are they are they kind of compartmentalized like that uh, they can be in fact one of the really good uh, studies that can be one of the really good surveys that can be used with clients uh, comes from Brad Plotts and it's his money uh, histories experiences um which you can use to work with clients. And as you're doing that, it really helps bring to the forefront what those money scripts are. He calls them money scripts. And those are the scripts in our mind that we believe money. Are we worried money avoidant? Were we, um, did we think money was clean, cash was king, and that's how uh, we grew up. But it starts to play in to certain ways that we grew up. And now I would say, do those many scripts describe everyone? No, but you can start to see bits and pieces of yourself formed throughout that. And that's what's so important, and especially in a couple relationship, is you starting to understand the background of why the decisions that are being made today, where they came from, because it may not just be recent history. Sometimes I see this as generational, passed down 
mm-hmm. from three or four generations back. And then you start to get a clearer picture of why these decisions are made and what's going to be passed on to that future generation yeah. as well. So finding out the history that someone has with money, that seems uh, straightforward, maybe not easy, but straightforward, right? If I can identify that very early money memory, I can probably uh, identify some associated behaviors that have sprouted from that early money memory, right? You know, oh, the first money memory I had was my parents fighting uh, during the recession uh, about, you know, how they were going to pay the bills or whatever the heck. Well, okay, so now it, it makes sense that I feel a lot of fear and anxiety about investing because I remember that being a big problem. Well, what do we do with it once we find those money scripts? How do we overcome it? How do we grapple with it? It seems like identifying it, tearing it down is a lot more straightforward than building it back up. So yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people are nervous because if they start to reach out and say, oh, I don't know what to do with this. I'm not a trained therapist. I don't know what to do with that answer. It's really about talking. It's about communication. And you'll find the more you listen and the more you allow them to tell the money story, they start to find these patterns and solutions themselves. So what you're doing as the question asker is allowing for the space to give someone the opportunity to open up and start discovery. And so as those questions come, it's probably more questions that you continue to ask and allowing them to understand and help uh, know those stories. There's a great list of questions about questions to ask and many history questions that you could do. But I think the most important part for us is not, it's not a problem to be solved or something to be fixed. It's a story to be heard. Yeah, that's and a, that's if an we allow point. that, then it starts yeah. to really heal past wounds or past hurts or whatever that be. And that's the part of forgiveness that comes in with this too. It's not just letting it fester. And that may be an early money memory, but if it's an untreated money memory, it hasn't been, it's been repressed instead of allowed to heal then it will still remain. But some of those are going to be about in a race that have healed and we can go beyond that. And so that's what we're really looking to do is bring them out so there can be conversations around it. And again, you're not fixing it. You're allowing yeah. them that space to discuss it. And it may not necessarily may not necessarily be a negative money memory or a negative script. Um, it may right? have the appearance of being completely and wholly positive, right? Uh, when I was little, mm-hmm. my dad taught me to save. You know, we walked down to the bank every Friday, put, you know, $20 into my little piggy bank, and I carried the coins in, they counted the coins, and I was saving. Okay, and now <laughs> I save. That's great. But that could have some consequences that I'm not happy with. It, it doesn't mean that saving's bad. And my father teaching me when I was a little kid to save, that's good, right? There are all these good, obvious, clear benefits of that money script and that money memory. But maybe... I have a tendency to save a little bit more aggressively and a little bit more, you know, um, a little bit more with 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 some negative motivations because I'm seeking this approval or or whatever. Um, I think a lot of people have like discount the exercise that you're speaking of because they don't see a problem in their life, and it's not like, to your point. It's not about there is a problem or about fixing you, but it's about finding more a deeper sense of awareness yeah i, I think one of the th- times i i realized that i was working with a couple and she just would was not concerned just not concerned at all 
about it, about running out of money about running out of money or okay. or having money and money yeah. was just not something she was worried about um and and the issue was she she she's a little worried about it. um it, but what i what i found kind of going through this you know that that you were talking about mary uh un, un, uncovering her money story she came from and she had not disclosed it up to that point she had come from a fairly wealthy family where there and, was always plenty and, of money yeah. never had to worry about money and so her experience with it is there's always more yeah and and so she was spending in a little bit of an outsized you know way but it was it was really interesting to kind of look at that money story and see how it was impacting decisions today i was working with a couple with a couple this was a retired couple and they were very closed off about the about their finances they had not shared with their kids anything they were kind of reluctant to share with me and i finally realized that where they were coming from was the the people who had raised them had grown up during the great depression where you didn't talk about money and if you did it was you know in whispers after the kids had gone to bed and so they they had come from a background where you didn't trust the banks and you yep. didn't talk about money and so yeah. that was their money story. And it was, so it was, they brought that to our discussions and I just had to realize that, but I, you know, it's, um, you know, that one was pretty obvious, but yeah, I think you're right. You have to ask where, you know, tell me about your money story. And, and, yeah. and that is really going to impact decision-making. What are, what are some of the most unique money stories that you've heard? Oh, wow. Wow. Um. We could spend all afternoon on this, but I think uh, a couple of thoughts. So here's a here's a very unique one that I'll sometimes ask. And you may wonder what in the world is she asking that. Um, I ask the question, "What does money smell like to you?" Uh, Sean, how about you? I, I'm just curious. What does money smell like to you? That's a that's a really good question. Uh, to me, it smells clean, which which mm-hmm. sounds like you know that's probably the opposite of true, um, but it just does. It it smells fresh and clean to me you know there's that inky smell but that's what goes through my head for for no logical reason but that's is maybe the opposite of of the way i'm supposed to be answering this question but one time we were walking through a barn um my grandma and i and my sisters were walking through a barn full of horses and (laughs) it smelled like a barn full of horses yeah meaning it, it smelled like horse manure and my grandma she grew up in a on a farm in east texas she goes smells like money <laughs> and that has always stuck with me well, she's not wrong about that <laughs> and, yeah. and so that's what i thought of when you asked the question oh that's funny well another texas story i grew up in west texas and i used to ask this question to my students at texas tech and i can't tell you how many times i got the answer cattle cattle yeah. with cotton why because that's what they bring. That is that is West Texas is ranching, that's, right? That's what turned into money. Yeah. Yeah. That's what turned into for me, money stinks. I'm just the opposite of you, Sean. It yeah. is a dirty, nasty stuff. But I think that became from my very early like working at a bank in my very early on, it just stunk. It was nasty. I remember a woman what time in the middle of a West Texas summer coming in when it was really hot and sweaty and give me enough information she reached down in the middle of her bra and pulled out uh, a lot of cash and set it on the <laughs> counter that had stuck with me and that oh, was man. not money i wanted to touch it 
fucked up pretty bad, right? So I think that those are really interesting questions. This is nothing that you would think, oh, why would you ask that question? But it starts conversations, right? About how you started to formulate that idea. Sean, I really like your discussion about the spouse that grew up with money. And now she needed to be more aware of it, but was it? That totally makes sense because there was always more money. It sounds like where she grew up, there was always a way to get more money. And so changing these mindsets is not a one-time conversation. It's a long-term, it's a slow moving ship, kind of on the helm of a ship. It moves very slowly by a very small helm. Same thing here is the very small decisions we make can move that trajectory uh, forward. So you asked for some more stories. Another story I have um, is I remember a client specifically that was in a very difficult situation. There were two government workers uh, with security clearances. They were about to lose their job. And quite honestly, they were heading towards bankruptcy. And I remember talking to them and uh, discussing some of the implications of that. And all of a sudden it came out as I asked more questions that both sets of parents on both sides had declared bankruptcy multiple times. In fact, one set of parents had declared bankruptcy so many times they had left the country and went to Mm. live in a third world country. And that was the moment it hit me. This has become a generational expectation. That's what you do when you get into a hard spot. And that had been passed down for at least two generations. And we had quite frank discussion of that's what's gonna happen with your children. And that's what they're saying. So. Yeah, I, I, that sounds super negative and sounds like, oh, we're passing down all these many histories and biases because we could talk all day about the negative side. But think about all of the small things. I remember um, a couple who were savers. And, and the Great Depression, my grandmother grew up in the Great Depression as well. I remember going to her house and she cut off the edges of the moldy cheese and kept eating it, right? Like there are so many yeah. stories that come out of that Great Depression of just you make do with what you bought and you keep on going. And I think those are stories of resilience as well. But taking the extreme on either end, it's out of balance. And that's what we're trying to do is bring in the balance of, yes, it's great to say it's also okay to spend too. And so having these conversations and understanding why someone may be more of a saver than they need to be and why someone else may be more of a spender than they need to be starts to start the conversation and the discussion around like, seeing their own behavior and that's where behavior change begins is when that communications yeah you know i used to think that the behavior would change in someone when i would show them the numbers you know and, and uh, okay you're you're 65 <laughs> you are gonna run out of you're fine <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're gonna, you should change your behavior uh no but we, no, you, what i what i found was that the behaviors and as a result of somebody's money story, those decisions they would make as a result of their money story would get them to a point of arrival where they had enough financial wherewithal to to retire. And so their spending had always been well below their means. They had always lived a very modest life. And this this story is repeated time and time again. And so what I used to think when I started doing this work is I'll show them the numbers and they will start flying first class. They'll not buy a Chevy. They'll buy a Cadillac. They'll travel, no. you know, rather than, you know, to the next town over, they'll travel international. They'll do all these things because I've shown them that they have the money. And, you know, you're laughing, Mary. I can see you laughing. It, because you know that that is so naive. They weren't going to change. Their money story <laughs> decisions tr- transfer through their whole life. 
and they were just going the habits that worked well for them and they got good results from those decisions they weren't about to change that decision making structure or framework just because i showed them a spreadsheet yeah spreadsheets don't change behavior maybe that's no. the big underline from this the spreadsheets don't change behavior i remember being in the bank in midland texas midland is a, a well it's a a boom town. Yeah. So yes. uh, high more, income, more high millionaires not. per capita than anywhere else in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Midland, Texas. I worked at a, a large bank there and I remember vividly watching people walk in. Right. And you would see the what I don't know what the right terminology is, but the ones who showed their wealth. Right. The word yeah, show yeah. or and I'm going to put wealthy quotes right here because those were the ones that also came to my window was like I gave me their credit card and said, I need another cash advance for the weekend. I mean, they were overspent. There was nothing left in the bank account. The most rich ones, the ones that would floor me when I pull up their bank account, were this, the old rancher in his overalls driving the beat up pickup truck that he parked around the corner. He didn't want to have to pay for parking and coming in. And he had more money than all the rest of them combined. That was to me the moment that I was like, Oh, that's what the idea. One of my favorite books of all times is The Millionaire Next Door by oh, Thomas Stanley. And it's book. fantastic because he talks about it. It's big hat, no cattle. And that's what we knew in Texas. You were a big hat. You were a big show off of that, but had nothing to show for it. And those that had it didn't want it. It was very much uh, close to their best. Then. So so how do you how do you find that once people have expressed this money story you're talking about this this mm-hmm. sort of history that they're able to most effectively utilize that that in that expressed information maybe that was buried and, but you asked the question use that information to make better decisions yeah one of the my favorite things to do with clients is walk them through what i call a spending plan project i do this with both my my students who most are master's degree uh level and financial planners themselves and i literally have them track their spending so they come up with what they think they're spending at the first of the month on one side then for a month they track it um to the penny every uh week and at the end of the month they reconcile that and they see and the reason that i love that so much is it starts to show you on paper. So Sean, it sounds like you're a numbers guy and like to use numbers. For those that are like the numbers, you're able to see not not as the planner, it's like putting your numbers in an app. It's just gonna spit out information and information is everywhere, right? But for me, if I start doing that myself and tracking in, I start to see my own behavior changes. And I have done this with hundreds of students, um, many of who are in the financial profession and say, this was a life-changing experience for me because oh. it's not me writing back and saying, hey, you should not have spent on that Gucci purse or you should have bought this or you should have, should have, should have, right? It's them seeing it in real life, being able to say, oh, that's what Sean meant when he handed me these numbers and said I'm running out of money. That's what he meant. And this is where that leak is. And they make that determination themselves to make those behavior changes. And the how most long do you have people do that for? Um, the best is three months. If you can do it up to three months, uh, yeah. if I can get someone to do it for one month and just get them in the habit, but things come in three three months is, is ideal. It, so, so what are they doing? Are they getting to the end of the month and looking backwards? Are they writing everything down for the week? Are they tracking it every one, day? How often are they tracking it? 
the way that I like to run it is they start at the beginning of the month and they just write everything down, but they think they're going to spend on this. And it changes month to month. Your December looks different than your July, et cetera. And so they'll write it down at the beginning of the month. And then every week, at least once a week, they're sitting down and putting pen to paper, right? And it could be oh, done so in spreadsheet. Yeah, at least weekly check-in. At least. That makes and so then much at sense. the end of the month, I actually have them reflect back. So we don't even look at the numbers too much. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. It's their reflection. Uh, for my students, I actually have them write a whole paper on this. Of what did you, what surprised you? What didn't surprise you? What did you expect? And where where do you think those uh, changes would come from? That to me is asking those questions is more important than what's actually on the paper and what those numbers mean because then that starts to tell you where the grants really to change the behavior or the spouse or whatever else. I actually have couples do this. Um, I remember one suit came in and said, if you want me to get divorced, you'll have me do this. And I said, I'm not looking for divorce, but I am looking for a conversation. And so it really is painful for some. And it's some of the first times they've ever had a discussion about money with their spouse. It's when they sit yeah. down to do a project. I mean, it. in my experience, I'm, I'm talking with, generally speaking, wealthy clients and generally speaking, people who care about money. If they're not both of those things, then I usually don't meet them. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And, and, and still, when I ask people how much they're spending, I've never had anyone be right on their first guess ever, yeah. ever, ever. No. I've never said yeah. how much you spend in and somebody goes, ah, 23,000 a month. And then we look at yeah. it and they're right. Most yeah. of the time when I ask, they can't even begin to have an answer. They, they don't yeah. even... They don't even have, they can't even guess. And I, and I'll say, well, to the nearest thousand. You're um, right. Maybe, maybe to the nearest 5,000. The number's so right. big that to the nearest thousand. Right. Just give me a ballpark number. And yeah. I will push them to basically, oh my gosh, Mary, please just say any number so I can move on. And they <laughs> right. won't say a number. Yeah. And they'll start counting in their head. They'll start, well, I'll have to look. And they start real granular. Yeah. And, and it's that's, been $37 on lunch yesterday. Yeah, so if I do that <laughs> six times a week, that's going to be, but, and I tell them, I'm like, look, at where this means that we need to figure out what the number, right? And I'm not so, so concerned right now with what the number is. I'm more concerned that you know what the number is. Um, you know, and the same thing's true in business. It's like, if I say, oh, what was your revenue last quarter? Uh, I don't know. Um, okay. <laughs> well, first, before we figure out if it needs to go up, down, or sideways, you got to know what it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you need to know what your quarterly priorities are. You need to know what your KPIs are. You need to know the numbers in your business. Well, you need to know the numbers in your your family as well. And knowing it's the first step. So I imagine that makes all the sense to me that you're saying by tracking it, a function of tracking it alone is, uh, you know, you see positive benefits. Yeah, but for don't... sure. Because- Doing that is one step to increase their awareness from basically zero to now total and complete awareness. Well, I think that's a good companion with the the, the money story knowledge yeah, when you look at making decisions because that's a, that's an emotional piece of information. And then now what you're talking about is okay, let's now move to the factual information so that you have both of those yeah. that you can reconcile to make a a good decision. Uh, I, I think the emotional part is the harder part. Uh, because it's not a it's not a mathematical answer. Yeah, it's not uh, objective. It, it's obviously subjective. It's not you can't get it a get it on a report for someone to no, tell you exactly sure. what what's wrong and what you need to change. 
have you have you Mary have you seen people um after they've shared their money story with you that emotional sort of baseline when you're looking at making decisions have you seen people just like reject it or yeah that's my money story but you know I don't want to I don't want to deal with it or they're fighting against it or how are people reacting or, Once you get that information. Yeah, or denying like the obvious. Yeah, deny it. The, the obviously true money story. You know, your, your dad went bankrupt eight times. You tell me that yeah, didn't have anything no, to do with it. Nah. <laughs> no wonder you're concerned about security. Yeah, no wonder. Yeah. Um, I think it, well, it's a couple fold, right? Like once a lot of money stories, no one's ever asked most of the time what your money story or money history is. So just you asking that question is a differentiator. And it's also probably the first time they've thought about it, which gets them thinking more about how that happened. Um, I remember a financial planner once asking and saying to me, I think I've got to refer, we worked inside an employee assistance program. So we had psychologists on the end. She goes, I think we need to refer this client over to a, a psychologist because they're crying. And I said, mm. pretty sure you just need to ask another question. <laughs> That's such so a- we as planners, they'd be okay with, with, Emotions, right? That's like such a it's not all response. about the numbers. It is about emotions. But I think what I see a lot of times is if I'm only getting a certain level or a denial, then I haven't asked enough questions. That needs that onion needs to be built back a few more layers, or there needs to be time and expanded. And let me throw in one more idea that comes with this because we use something in psychology called trans theoretical model stages of change. So what that really means is People have stages of change that they go through. It starts with something called pre-contemplation, where it's not even really on my radar screen, doesn't really matter, moves into contemplation, into action, uh, and then ends up in maintenance. Now, I'm really on the spot here of all seven. But the, the point is, is we often, as planners or experts, come in and say, the client is ready for change because they called me and came into my office. Do you know how many people are ready for action? Less than 20% are actually in that action phase. So you may be having, I think it was you, Singer, earlier that said, you know, I've got this client who doesn't even seem to be engaged. Well, it's just because they're not in that stage of action yet. They're not ready mm-hmm. to take that next step. So you and can talk to about them until you're blue in the 20%, face. 20% of individuals, 20% of clients. Individuals that are ready to take action. And this is both the psychological world as well as the financial world. That seems high. That seems high to me, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, we talk to people who tell us they want to take action. Yep. And even, geez, even out of that group, 20% seems high. (laughs) It's hard. Because it's hard to change or it's hard to hear about sometimes hard things. And money is hard for most people. And so- knowing that most of the people you're talking about are somewhat in that pre-contemplation or contemplation, which means they're just thinking about it, or it may not even be on the radar screen yet. And that's okay. Still having those discussions moves them more to that action phase. So while that money history story may, may not jump you to action, what it will do is start them thinking more about how they learned about money which eventually gets them into thinking more about what they want to do with their money yeah. today or in the future. Change is very difficult, but it's a muscle, I believe. If you can learn how to make changes, positive changes that reflect your values with respect to your health, with respect to your fitness, with respect to your nutrition, with respect to your relationships, you're going to be able to do a better job when you want to make change with respect to your finances. So 
constantly finding ways to improve, finding ways to to remove bad behavior from your life or behavior that does not serve your aim. Um, that's a muscle. The more you do that in one area, it's going to help you in all of those other areas when you want to make that change. Yeah, I agree. But keep so, in Mary, mind I have a those final muscles. question for you on, uh, yeah. when, when you look at, if you had to narrow it down to, to one takeaway, what's, what's your biggest decision-making tip that business leaders ought to know about? Start small. And I know that yeah. sounds really flat, but if you start small and make what's one small change you could make today that will make it better tomorrow. One small thing, because often what we do, especially as business owners, is try to eat the whole project or problem all at the same time. Yeah. But if you were just to do one thing a little bit better today than you did yesterday, you've just moved forward. And one step at a time, sometimes you go backwards a little bit, but if you're still taking that one step forward, then you're making progress. It's when we stop moving is when an action happens. So the more you can do, not the more you can do, let me restate that. The small thing you can do today that you feel like you can achieve is enough for today. And there will be more tomorrow, but just keep making those small changes. And those small changes, like I mentioned earlier, that's what moves big ships, very small hills, very small steps, get you to your final destination of where you want to go. Consistency is key to any aim that we set for ourselves, and I, I agree with that 100%. It makes all the sense, right? That's why Dave Ramsey says, hey, if you're trying to get out of debt, pay off that smallest credit card first. doesn't make mathematical sense. I should pay off the one with the highest interest rate. He says pay off the smallest no. one because you want that that win. We need the wins okay. in order to keep us motivated to have that consistent, steady climb toward our ultimate aim. And and a lot of times, whether it's business or fi- finance, we, we think we've got to solve it all at once. And I've never seen anyone with one decision, get themselves on track with their money. I've never seen anyone make one single choice that set them up for financial success. Unless maybe you take the one person a year who wins the mega millions. Uh, okay. <laughs> I guess picking those right numbers, that was your lucky draw. But if, unless that's in your financial plan, which it shouldn't be, no single decision is going to get you there. Thanks so much for being here, Mary. Yeah. I appreciate it. Where can people find um, the work that you do and connect with you online? Sure. Yeah. You can find me at keynote.financial. It's Financial Behavior Keynote Group. You can also find us on LinkedIn as well as Twitter and Instagram. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brad. Thank you. You know, my, my takeaway from our discussion with Dr. Mary Bell Carlson was about how it's so important to understand the framework that you're using to make the decisions. You know, we talked about having sort of the factual information, but also the money story that she was talking about. So that I think there's the emotional or you know affective part of the brain when you look to make decisions. There's the cognitive part of the brain as well that puts you into into action. But you need to really reconcile both of those before you make a decision. My biggest takeaway was our conversation on the money scripts. You know, I like that it's called money scripts because it's stories with clear decision trees that we tell ourselves um, that guide our thinking. And it may be true, maybe fictional. But the, my takeaway is the money script as a way to define that particular way of thinking. 
think that's valuable. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.